Good morning. Uh, so Casey has been exposed to COVID, and so uh, I have the blessing of being in front of you this morning. So uh, my name is Brian Harris. I'm currently a student at Lincoln. I spoke uh, some time ago. Can you guys hear me? We're good? Okay, I thought I heard somebody say something they couldn't. Um, so I'm honored to be here, and uh, I feel very blessed. Uh, I really enjoy preaching, and I don't get the opportunity as often as I'd like. If we could reflect back on 2020, I think the thematic idea that might come to mind is uh, that was different. My wife and I, we were supposed to celebrate our 14, 14 years of being married together on January 1st, and she's asking me what we want to do, and I'm like, what can we do? There's nothing open. I can't, we can't just, I mean, I mean, is it even difficult to find food you can just pick up and bring, and if we were to go to Springfield or something, we pick it up and then it's cold by the time we get home, or we eat it in the car, and that's miserable, and I mean, there's, there's really nothing. Everything's just so different than it used to be. Who remembers when we used to go in public and talk to people? That was cool, right? Now you're kind of looked at as a weirdo. And, it's, and not only that, but it's like you kind of want to show a mutual respect. You're like, they might not want you to talk to them because of a fear that you're going to give them COVID or something. Or, you know, you have to have your masks on so the conversations aren't as easy to hear. And so it's just difficult. About a year and a half ago, um, back when you could talk to people in public, and I'm an extrovert, so I often find myself in these conversations with strangers. Anybody else like that in here? You guys just talk to strangers? No, I'm the only weirdo? Okay, so yeah. And so um, it often leads to weird conversations because, you know, conversation without any context is often, uh, you know, a recipe for disaster. Um, we're in, I'm in Denton, Texas, visiting my brother back when we could travel without any worries. And uh, my wife is shopping for maternity clothes uh, for our son, Elias, who's in her womb. And uh, I'm watching, you know, this mall we're at, had this like play area where kids could play together. And I'm watching my two daughters play with a bunch of other kids in this big play area. And this, uh, this blonde-headed nine-year-old thug in camo cargo shorts walks up to me. I'm just, you know, kind of leaning up against the wall watching my kids play. And he walks up to me. And he's like, you're supposed to be some kind of tough guy or something? Is that weird? I look around, I'm like, you can't be talking to me. So I throat punched him. No, because, I mean, boy, that's a weird thing. I jumped in. Yeah, that's a, who says that to you, right? I'm like, so I'm like, no, sir. I called this nine-year-old sir. Who would believe that? And then I said, I, 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 I'm, I'm just watching my kids, uh, you know, because you don't get called out like that. It's a weird thing. Conversation with strangers can go a lot of weird, different directions. And, and sometimes... Um, if, there's, if there is some context involved, it, it allows for even weirder interpretations of things. For instance, I was in Indonesia doing a, some missions work, and this local preacher had the responsibility of feeding a couple of us that were there, and he asked what we want to eat. And uh, I, I tried to do you know typical American things. Ah, I don't care. It doesn't matter. And uh, you know, my, my thought was, hey, whatever's easy for you, right? This is the, that's what, the message I'm trying to communicate. Whatever is easy for you, I don't, don't go out of your way. Whatever you're planning on eating, whatever you would normally do, I'll eat that. It'll be fine. And he says, that's what's wrong with you Americans. You don't care about anything. And it's like, whoa, there was a, he had another context of something. He was interpreting what I said from, right? There's some complexity there. You know, we've been in uh, this season of Advent, this season of waiting for, 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 for God to work through Jesus Christ coming into the world 
Uh, and we've been just kind of waiting. Now we even know at this moment we're still waiting for the second coming, for this time of judgment, for this opportunity to be in his presence again. Uh, but really what we are, especially on this side of the resurrection, is we're asking this question, what do we do with the knowledge of God working? What do we do with the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is there, are there things that we need to do? And I think we can discover this answer as we study in John chapter 4 this conversation between Jesus and a stranger. Well, not a stranger to him, but certainly a stranger to her. This is the, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus is traveling through the Samaritan town of, of Sychar, and he is tired. And the orthodox view of this is that it is one person with two natures, each 100%, 100% human, 100% God. And because of this, God tires in the flesh. And so he's leaning up against this well, and he's tired, and this Samaritan woman walks up. It's around noon, it's hot, and the well is known as Jacob's well. His disciples have gone to find food for him, and now he's in the presence of just Jesus and this stranger. And I want to give you some context so that you understand the audacity of Jesus. I'll start, start first by addressing this, this issue of this Jewish man talking to this woman. See, the rabbis taught that a man was supposed to have minimal speaking engagement with women. Some rabbis even said this was supposed to be true of their speaking with their wife. Right? Maybe some men here would would wish that still held up. I don't know, but hopefully not. And so uh, some rabbis also said it was better to burn the word of the law than to share it with a woman. Some rabbis said that because Isaac and Jacob met their wives in this well setting, that talk to a woman at a well was considered a sign of flirting. Uh, especially it was, not, uh, it, was, it was frowned upon if you were to teach them about God in this setting. But she was also a Samaritan, and many of you might be familiar with this history, that although the Samaritans and the Jews shared common ancestry at one point, the Samaritan side started intermingling with these pagans, and now the Jews see them as a sort of mixture of, of, of God's blood and pagan blood, and they're, they're not really fit. You know, like they're, they're impure and they're frowned upon, like, hey, no, no, these aren't our people anymore. They're, the, the very fact that they exist is a, a fruit of betrayal. You know, it's discouraging, it's upsetting, but there's more than that. There's a lot more than that. It's not the only reason they hated him. They had a strong history together. As a matter of fact, uh, 600 years prior to this conversation at the well, the Jews are leaving exile for 70 years. They've spent a year traveling back to their own country. They've now been given permission to rebuild their town, rebuild their houses. They're no longer going to be homeless. And a letter comes from the area of Samaria to the king to demand them to stop building, and they hold that against the whole region of Samaria, that they have to stop building their houses after all this time where it finally looks like they're going to be back on the right track, they're going to be okay, they're going to have their house again. They now have to be homeless for another phase of life. And it goes deeper than that. See, around 170 B.C., this king uh, of Egypt named Antiochus IV he thought of himself as a god. He actually called himself Jupiter, which is the equivalent of Zeus, if you're familiar. And uh, he brings this army north of Egypt, and he goes and he takes over the Israelites, and he says, you guys must bow down to me. 
And if you're familiar with this history of the Israelites, when they leave exile, they don't give back into idolatry. This is the time when they start to become pure. They try, they try to really obey God and be, and be true to him. And so when, they, when this guy, when this man says, hey, you guys need to worship me, they're like, hey, we've been there. We've done that. We're not doing that again. We know where it got us. It got us in exile, and we don't want that. And so this king starts killing the Jews. He starts raping their women and killing their children. It is a very, very horrible situation for the Israelites. The Samaritans hear of this. So they write a letter to King Jupiter. They say, sir, we would love to worship you. A matter of fact, our temple we have that used to be dedicated to Yahweh, we have decided to rename to Jupiter Hellenus. We would like to worship you at this temple. In order to prevent being persecuted as the Jews were. They completely betrayed whatever remnants of worshiping God existed. 62 years later, in 108 B.C., the Israelites gained their independence. Their next step was to strike back at the Samaritans and their betrayal, their abandonment of Yahweh. And so their leader, John Harkonnes, marches through Samaria and destroys their temple. Another 120 years later, Jesus is now nine. And there's this terrorist activity by the Samaritans on the Jews. They smuggle in a bunch of human remains, a bunch of bones and a bunch of dead body parts. They they smuggle it underneath their clothes. They get into the grounds of the temple and they spread bones all around the Jewish temple. This was like 9-11 of the day. Like for those who remember where they were on 9-11, anybody like that? Yeah, so I remember I was in high school. Some of you are like, well, you're that young. Some of you are like, well, you're that old. I get it, but hey... um, so that, that, it was that type of activity. People are like, hey, do you remember where you were when the Samaritans spread bones around the Jewish temple? The Jews weren't allowed to touch the dead. This is a huge no-no. It would make them immediately unclean. It would prevent them from doing any type of sacrifices to God. What are they going to do? This was terrorist activity. And this is the context that Jesus sits up against this well in the region of Samaria, and a Samaritan woman walks up, and he says, Will you give me a drink? And she says, how are you, a Jewish man asking me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus says back to her, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for living water. And she says, you have no way to get water of any kind, not to mention Jacob the patriarch dug this well. And he was able to drink from it himself, right? Implying that Jesus, if you have this great water, why are you asking me for any? And Jesus says, yeah, but my water gives life. Now, when I read this, what I hear in her, I hear this tone, is that she's tired of the conversation. And so she's like, fine, give me this water. And Jesus says, okay, well, go get your husband. She's like, gotcha. I don't have a husband. And he's like, no, I got you because you've had five. And the one you're currently with is not your husband. And now she's like, whoa. This guy might be a prophet. He knows some things. So tell me, where should we worship? And I want you not to miss this in verse 22. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. Right? This is a reference to the Samaritans changing the name of their temple. Right? This is that, that's the reference that it's like a jab. Like, hey, you think you understand what worship is? What it looks like? You guys, your family, you have a history, ancestry of being so afraid to worship God in truth that you have changed the name of your temple. 
Verse 23 and 24 says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, on this side of the resurrection, it's pretty easy to figure out what this means because there's other language that is very clear. For instance, in John chapter 7, right, same author, same book, a few chapters later, Jesus is at this feast, and he says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, right? This living water he's been speaking about in John 4, he brings it up again in John 7. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified, right? So he's saying that this living water he's offering is a representation of the Spirit of God that has not been given until he is glorified, right? And we see when this all takes place in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the people, they repent and be baptized and receive forgiveness of sins, give for the Holy Spirit, right? So this is all pretty easy to, to trace chronologically when this takes place, right? So this is all this thing is an invitation. The entire conversation with the Samaritan woman is this invitation to be a part of God's people so that when he is glorified, she, she can receive the Spirit and worship God in spirit and in truth. But that's not exactly what we're talking about today. We're speaking on what to do with this information. Once we receive the invitation, what do we do with that? But once we know that God has worked in the world, what is our response to God's work? Anybody else get distracted easily? I walk into Walmart, get a phone call, leave Walmart, bought nothing. Does that ever happen? You get home and realize you still have a list you didn't get? Certainly I'm not the only one. Maybe I am again. It's okay. It's okay. You know, there are some times where we get distracted and it sort of alters our life. Uh, There are other times when something alters our life because it is just more important, right? It's not like like it really really changed anything or we're even upset. It's just what has to take place next. My uh, middle child, her name is Berea. When she was two years old, um, she had a cold for a couple of days. And parents, you might know that when your kid's a little sick, they're kind of cuddly, and that's nice. Um, But she wasn't really getting better. We didn't know what was going on. Um, and then this one day she wakes up and she's like just more lethargic. And that's not like any of my kids. They're all super high energy. And I'm like, all right, something's serious. So we take her to the doctor. And I go to the doctor and he's checking her out. And immediately he pulls out his phone and he calls the hospital. And he says, we have a two-year-old in route. And I'm like, this two-year-old? You mean or from a different, you were just in another room with a two-year-old. Not this one, right? And he's like, he looks at me, he's like, your daughter is not breathing well. It's pretty scary, scary words to hear. And I I said, so we need to go like in a little bit, I can go home and pack up or we go now. He's like, go now. For a parent, those are uh, pretty, pretty scary words to hear. Go now. Uh, There wasn't some sort of distraction that came up and took place and altered my life. There was something significant of importance to make sure my daughter was okay. Go now. So I put on my caution lights. I took off, and there was no reason to call an ambulance because they can't go that fast. 
And uh, we eventually got there, and by the grace of God, um, through about, she was in the hospital for a week, and she, she was okay. Uh, but it was a very, very scary time in my life, and I imagine my wife's life as well. When someone is invited to drink of living water, what should they do next? When, when God, the creator of the universe, the one who dies on the cross for your sins, invites you into a relationship with him, what is your response supposed to be? Verse 25, it says, uh, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar. And went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. That's to Jesus. Did you catch that? There's a small detail, small phrase in this little passage I read that I think adds a lot to what is actually taking place in this story. Why did the woman come out? Well, she came out to get water. She came out at noon. It's kind of an odd time to come out. Most people would come out in the morning or the evening. The, 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 a matter of fact, to go to the well together as a group was a way to share news. It was also a way to gossip. It was a way to have communion. I mean, I, when I say communion, I mean just fellowship with people in general. And she goes by herself in the middle of the day when it's hot, clearly trying to avoid something, so it seems. Oh, what could a lady who's been married five times need to avoid? Maybe hurt, maybe gossip. Maybe she doesn't desire fellowship with the other people because they haven't treated her like one. They've kept her like an outcast. She goes for the water, but she leaves her jar. She leaves her jar. Now, water jars were expensive. They were necessary instruments for life. And she leaves it with what seems like a bunch of strangers. She leaves the jar. See, when you accept the invitation, your life changes. When you accept the invitation, your priorities change. Your goals change. Everything about you changes. She goes in the middle of the day to avoid the crowds. Now immediately she's going to seek the crowds. She's going to find people to tell of this good news. She wants to share with them what she has experienced. Her priorities have changed. Who cares about shame when you have been redeemed from it? See, what we find in this story is an example of a very fundamental doctrine of Christianity. It's that saved people save people. Those who are saved in Christ, who have life in Christ, offer to give that same gift to others they come across. All they come across. Save people. Save people. Somewhat of a natural instinct. The woman at the well immediately overcomes her fear for the greater cause. Paul starts planting churches. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 brings the gospel to Africa. The Philippian jailer who's on the verge of committing suicide shares the gospel with his family. Save people. Save people. And moving from John chapter 4 to today's context, we've already received the living water. We've already received what the world has thirsted for. 
We have not just met Jesus by the well. We have received the invitation. We have been empowered by his spirit, by God in us. You know, Emmanuel, during this Christmas season, we say, we say God with us, but we're past that phase. We're in this new phase of God in us, being empowered by his spirit to do his work. And so I beg you, leave the jar. Leave your goals and your priorities as the woman as the well did and take up the will of God. Jesus gives us this great commission. He says, go now and make disciples of all nations. When? Go now, right now. It's a command to go. And when the the person who died on the cross for you tells you to go, you go now. Samaritan woman left the jar that represented her life. It represented her priorities and her goals. And her life was altered to do the will of God. And this is why historically communion comes after baptism. When someone is baptized into Christ, they die to self. They give up their goals and their priorities to take on Christ. So they can participate in this heavenly meal. They leave the jar behind. They leave their life to take up life in Christ. The bread represents the body. The juice represents the blood. We participate in something holy. I would like to read Paul's account of this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord, but I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you are dismissed, in a moment, take this opportunity to take communion. Continue your worship through communion, through, uh, through offering. There's plates in the back. Uh, if you have a communication card, please throw that in there as well as the ushers dismiss you through this last song. Let's pray. Uh, my God, my Father, uh, we are blessed that we could be your people, that we can meet even in the midst of this pandemic and in this very weird and different year. My Father, as, as we have been meditating and focusing on your work that we were waiting, the world was waiting to take place, that now that we have seen it take place, now that we can recognize it, now that we, now that we, we, uh, we celebrate it, my God, that we will respond appropriately. My God, we thank you for your continual patience with us, your desire to save us, and the way you continue to work in this, this very lost and dark world. My God, we know that even though we don't understand exactly what's taking place, we know you're at work. We know your will's going to be done, and we know that, that the lost are going to hear this message. We ask that we could be your vessels in the process of that, that we could be used to do your will uh, during these times. My God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. pray all this in his name. Amen.